At the intersection of business, technology, and people is Connected Futures, your guide to business success. The Luddites are often portrayed as comical contrarians on the wrong side of history. In fact, they had real-life fears about how machinery would impact their textile jobs in 19th century England. Today, artificial intelligence is driving similar fears about replacing humans. Tech innovators, business leaders, and politicians will need a better understanding of the moral impact of AI, especially as AI begins to drive cars, converse with customers, and influence life-and-death decisions on the battlefield. But what exactly are the ethics of AI? Connected Futures senior writer Kevin Delaney spoke with Colin Allen, who teaches the history and philosophy of science and medicine at Indiana University, Bloomington. Among his many books, Dr. Allen was co-author of Moral Machines, Teaching Robots Right from Wrong. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Dr. Colin Allen, for chatting with us today. So, Colin, we've heard about the coming impact of artificial intelligence for years, but suddenly we seem to be at an inflection point at which it's beginning to affect our lives in, in deeper ways. AI can drive amazing progress, but it's not without its dangers. So in what areas do you see AI having the most immediate impact? I think that probably rather than thinking there's a single inflection point here, it's probably more realistic to see the development of AI as a series of inflection points, more like a stair step, right? So I think we're at one of those points where there is some rapid progress being made, but I don't think we're at a point where we've gone from systems that have very little utility to systems that are going to take over the world or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, so there are undoubtedly some great strides being made now with greater computing power and that computing power being thrown at different learning models. So it's going to put AI in places where it couldn't go 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, but I think we can still see all sorts of bottlenecks, which means we're not quite at the point where we have what some people want to call a singularity. Well, the singularity idea makes a lot of sensational headlines. and. It certainly finds its way into science fiction, but but also some some pretty serious thinkers like um, Elon Musk, who, who who are giving some pretty dire warnings, which again makes some make for some sensational headlines. But right. in the mean in in the shorter term, you know, before robots might actually wipe us all out, um, super smart ones at least, maybe we could just talk about specifically the how it will impact jobs in the near future. I mean, self-driving cars yeah. is just one example where a, a lot of people, some of whom you know do not have advanced degrees, are making pretty good livings uh, driving trucks or cars. Yeah. I don't know if you saw this piece in the New York Times magazine a couple of days ago about the Google Brain and their translation efforts. I did. There they talk a lot about how these deep learning networks are enabling all sorts of really great accomplishments that weren't possible until quite recently. And all that's fine. The reporter talked about how one could take a network that had been designed to do translation and train it to do something else entirely. What you can't do with these networks at this point, and I don't think anybody has a really good idea of how to do this, is how to train a network that can do both tasks 
well enough, right? So a human being can drive a truck and play chess and file the reports that are necessary to you know, keep the, the authorities happy with the trucking and all the rest of it, right? We have this kind of task switching capability that um, is not so easily implemented in the systems that are being developed right now. So if we switch now to the other track and think about the cars, we're training cars that are really good in environments that are really like the environments that they've been trained in. But we've already seen a little bit of news this week with Uber's slight groups with two cars running red lights in San Francisco on the first day and other, they say this was an operator error, but the point is that they need an operator in, there in the first place, right? The cars aren't really fully capable of driving it in conditions that they haven't been exposed to. And it's not even clear that if you trained up a car in Pittsburgh and translated that car with that network to San Francisco, it would do very well because the markings are different enough and the street configurations are different enough and all the rest of it. You'd have to retrain it. Would you be able to take the car back to Pittsburgh after it beat San Francisco? Would it have to relearn? You know, these are all questions I think are open research questions. And here we're still just talking about driving context. You know, when you think about all the things that a, that a taxi driver does besides take it from A to B, but maybe make a recommendation about going to this restaurant or that restaurant and all the rest of it, sure, we can build systems that do each of those pieces individually. Can we put them all together into one package? That's still very much an open challenge, I think. It's interesting you mentioned the differences between Pittsburgh and San Francisco. Stick a, a self-driving car in, in New York City or Boston, for example, probably be a very different challenge as well. It, it almost makes yeah, me yeah, China for that. Respect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, it it almost makes me think of you know the chat bots that have been uh, corrupted by some of the dialogue on social media. You know, they exactly. they start spouting out sexist and racist language. Uh, a very kindly self-driving car might be corrupted, almost like like a good teenager who hangs out with the wrong crowd, you know? That's right. And people will actually exploit those limitations. So there's already anecdotal, and maybe you can find some actual reports of this, where people kind of game the self-driving cars at four-way stop signs because they know that, that the car is not going to move uh, as long as they're moving, and so they'll... they'll you know, go out of turn, basically. We have some evidence that, that people will, in fact, use whatever limitations these things have. Mm. And I think that raises a really interesting question, too, which is, to what extent do we adapt to the technology rather than having the technology truly be adapted to us? And I'll give you an example. So Google now has this online game, AI game, Center where you can do things like respond to a prompt to draw a picture and then the neural network will guess what it is that you drew. And I've had a couple of people point me to this and sort of be impressed how, how good it seems to be. I got in it and the first couple of games I played against, you played rounds of six, so the first couple I got maybe three or even two, I think in one case out of the six correct for my drawings. By the end, after five or six rounds, it was getting five or six of my drawings. But what I realized was that I had adjusted my drawings <laughs> that made it easier for it to guess what I was drawing rather than mm. it really recognizing my drawings. And so I think we do this. We will continue to do this. We are adaptive creatures. We will adapt to the technologies that we put in our own environments. Um, but we shouldn't confuse that for thinking that these, are, these systems are as adaptive as we, we might think they are.
It raises an interesting question, though, because at Cisco or anybody involved in technology, you you constantly encounter the whole idea of culture change and technology disrupts and you as an individual, your culture as, as an organization has to adapt in a lot of different ways. Digital transformation has upended so many assumptions about work and play and everything that we do. It, it'll be the same story with AI, maybe a little more pronounced in some ways, don't you think? Yeah, so I think that's, that gets back to the employment issues and so on as well. I mean, people have always worried about the disruptive aspects of technology. You go back to the Luddites, you know, they're usually kind of cartoonishly portrayed as people who just hated machines, but they were people who were worried about the machines taking their jobs. Sure. That was the textile uh, industry, correct? That's correct. That's right. Um, so did, did, did that automation actually lead to massive unemployment? Well, it led to unemployment for some people, but overall it didn't change the overall employment. Um, I sort of think that's what's going on here. Certain jobs are going to get automated. That will make it harder for people who currently do those jobs. In the long run, will we see what some people are claiming will happen where we just have a lot more leisure time? I really think history is not on the side of that prediction. Mm. Um, I think that you know, other forms of work and ways of making a living will, will come to being, but of course those other forms won't be to everybody's uh, skill set or satisfaction, but some of it will be extremely rewarding work and people will want to do it. So, I, yes, disruptive, but I tend to see this also, maybe it's just my nature to see it as a little bit more uh, of a repetition of a historical pattern rather than something fundamentally novel that we haven't seen before. Hmm. Of course, some people would argue that what's going on though is, is automation of tasks that are previously thought to require a high degree of education. So some people are talking about medical diagnosis. That was in the New York Times article or uh, certain kinds of legal advice giving and so on as being automatable in this way. But I'm not so sure that that's all that novel either. And as you pointed out, some of the places where this is going to happen is things like driving are, are not exactly high education level jobs, right? Yeah, and it brings into question some of the things that that AI and and other advanced analytic technologies are great at is combing through reams of data and finding patterns and and doing some other things like that that really aren't that creative or interesting for humans to do anyway. I mean, there may be, there's a school of thought that says that some of these technologies will continue to take out some of the drudge work that people don't really like doing anyway and sort of free them to do more, more creative work. And even like IT is an example where, you know, IT people, they spend time going through logs and things and looking for patterns and and trying to you know tie things together and and just logging information in and and even cybersecurity where you know you're kind of searching for these telltale signs that there might be a hack artificial intelligence can do that so much faster and enable you to do a more more creative job in creating a more proactive response to that yeah i think that's right i mean that's the optimistic side of this there's also going to be some or, I mean, drudge work will never go away. There's still going to be a need to sort of monitor the machines in some way. 
But maybe that even that gets more interesting in the sense that there's more complexity to the task of the monitoring that will engage people better than simply manipulating a riveter or something like that, right? Right. And even, you know, in something like retail, I think a retail associate could become a lot more important in some ways. People will engage with chatbots, for example, online. They'll, they'll get a lot of ideas about a product, but they'll still want that retail associate on the floor. People, you know, a lot of studies show people really do like to go to the store and they like to pick up a product and they like mm-hmm. to talk to a retail associate who's very knowledgeable. And some of these tools right. might empower those people in different ways. If you have, you know, artificial intelligence at your fingertip on your handheld device, uh, don't you think those kind of jobs might actually become more interesting for those people and more creative? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I I'd certainly, if I'm going to buy something like a camera or, you know, some piece of electronic equipment, let's say, I I will do a lot of research online before I go. Um, Sometimes I'll buy online, but then I often do want to go to the store and talk to somebody. But I feel like because I've got this information before I go in, I have a much higher level discussion than I would have with with the person there. Frankly, if the right person's there, I think they enjoy talking to me more than they would somebody who's just shuffled in with no clue what it is that they're looking at, right? So, so yeah, I, I think there is a potential for, for better human engagement there with the, with that kind of information uh, processed in a way that makes it easy for people to grasp and, and communicate with each other about. Yeah, because the AI might actually really enhance and empower that person on on the retail floor, the AI might be able to corroborate all kinds of different data, assuming that person has opted into that retailer's app or whatever, as long as they're not sort of creeped out by the the intrusion factor there, you know, that retail associate might have a lot of information about that person's previous buying history, etc. I mean, here I think is another place where an interesting issue comes up, which also was touched upon in that New York Times article that's been around a long time, which is, I'll put it the way the New York Times did, and then I'll put it my way, but the way the New York Times did is that the data going in might be biased, and so we need to be careful what we're getting out of the AI, because it might have just been fed biased data. And that's perfectly good advice, and I think that, you know, if your retail person has been fed a bunch of product information about the things that they're trying to sell to customers on the floor, consider the source, right? Are, are they actually giving us an objective? Are, and are they getting from the AI kind of objective evaluation of these things? So the way I like to think about this is that you know, what human beings do all day long, and what we're doing even right now is engage in a kind of interpretive process. So. I say something, you try to make sense of it, you say something back to me, I try to make sense of it. We haggle a little bit over meetings if we're not quite sure what the other one is saying, but we have this kind of back and forth trying to trying to figure out where the person is coming from, are they, you know, when they say these words, do they mean what I think they mean by it, this kind of thing. I think we're going to have to have that same kind of attitude towards AI, right? It's going to put out recommendations, go back to the medical diagnosis, it's going to say, this is a tumor, maybe it's going to be more accurate than, uh, or be able to spot things that a human radiologist couldn't see because it's too small. But the human radiologist still has to interpret the machine's output to make a decision on whether this is truly reliable in this case, right? Mm. And we know statistically it's 
but but it's never going to be perfect. So you've got to have some judgment in there. Is this a case where I should trust the machine, or do I have reasons not to? And that's just normally what we do, and that's what we pay skilled people to do. And I don't think that's going away. Yeah, someone with ten years of medical school and maybe. 10, 15, whatever, 20 years uh, in practice is going to have a certain intuition built up as well. They're going to have the, their, their very strong cognitive abilities, but they're also going to have some instincts that they've built up over the years that maybe no computer will ever really match. Yeah, or maybe it will, but just as experts can disagree, so the computer and the human expert can disagree. And that's why we have this kind of backwards and forwards where you think it's one thing, I think it's another, and we dig a little deeper. If the danger is if the AI is just deciding it is that, no capacity for engaging in that kind of interpretive dialogue, then then we're in trouble because it's the same as thinking that because it's an expert in one thing, it's an expert in everything. Just because the car can do well on this kind of road, it's not going to necessarily do well on another kind of road, right? Right. And of course, decision making has become much more collaborative over the years. I think it always was to some extent, but I think in a t typical enterprise. Yeah. So I think of the AI as just another part of the collaboration. But coming back to my earlier point, that it's a kind of a currently not very adapted part of that collaboration. Hmm. Right? So it's useful input to the people who are engaged in this kind of difficult task. We shouldn't ignore what AI can deliver, but we shouldn't think that because it's right 99% of the time, the humans are only right 98% of the time, that we should always defer to the machine. Right. And especially, as you say, I mean, it's going to be, if not fully entrusted, it's going to be involved in some pretty important decisions moving forward, like medical diagnoses and possibly even life and death decisions on a battlefield. So, as you say, part of that culture change is going to have to be to find out how much faith you put in, 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 in AI, right? That's right, and I think this is why some of the people who are in the industry are realizing that they, they don't just want to need systems that are very good at some skills such as driving or making a medical diagnosis. Those systems have to be able to explain themselves in some way. So this is the term, I don't know if you run across it, people will be talking about XAI, so this is explained, you know, explain, I, I'm not quite sure whether it's explained, explaining AI, but it's, you know, some explanatory AI. Um, but the idea is that these systems that we have now might be really good at playing Go or driving a car under certain conditions or translating from one language to another, if the New York Times is right. Uh, but they're not very good at explaining why they took that particular invasive action or made that particular movement go or um, chose this word rather than that word um, to, in, in this translation here. So there's kind of a meta level here which is still missing from the systems that we have. But I think it's important when you think about the the interpretive back and forth, the dialogue that goes back and forth when you've got a group of experts all trying to figure out what the heck is going on in some complex system, whether it's a patient's body or, or global warming or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's a, actually, from what I understood, that that's something that doctors have requested, right? If they're going to be, you know, taking seriously this machine's decision, 
they want to see how it came to that decision and what data went into it. Isn't that right? Isn't that wasn't that uh, one area where where that that sort of thing was really strongly requested? Yeah, I think that's one area. I think another area might also be in um, crash analysis for self-driving cars and actually get into accidents. Mm -hmm. Right? We it's sort of not good enough if you're the producer of that system to say, well, it was just a highly trained network that it, you know responded as it responded. Right? Mm -hmm. the, the courts are going to want a little bit more insight into the decision-making process that leads to the action that ends up with some kind of harm or damage. And so without without that capacity, um, if you just say, well, I don't know really how it works, it just <laughs> does a good job, that's not going to fly very well in that critical context. Right. I've actually heard people in the technology industry say, that uh, uh, people in IT say that some, some of the systems that they use, it begins to self-learn and they don't even know, <laughs> they can't even tell you how it got from like point A to point B to point C to point D, but the results seem seem pretty good to them. That's right, so if you're just focused on the successes, that's pretty good, but when you have to analyze the failures, now you've got some explaining to do. To right? put a a post-mortem gets complicated, yeah. Yes, that's right, that's right. And we tend to demand that in our technologies. I mean, you think about all the effort that goes into diagnosing exactly why that plane crashed or exactly why that train went off the rails, right? We tend not to do it with cars because we assume most of the time it's driver error. But if you start seeing a pattern, then you have to actually start trying to decompose the, um, the car to try and figure out why this brand of car is getting into this kind of accident with a higher frequency than you'd expect. And if, if it turns out that these deep learning networks are inherently not decomposable, then you've got a, you've got a problem if that's our standard way of approaching those kinds of problems. Now, do you have any thoughts on the weaponization of AI? Just where do you think that is going? How extensive will that play a role on the battlefield? Yeah, well, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. So I was uh, present at the first ever meeting of the what the acronym is ICRAC, the International Coalition for Robot Arms Control mm -hmm. in, in Germany. And that group put out a statement saying that robots absolutely should never be weaponized for military use. I signed on to that statement but with a little bit of a, I was torn because I think it's a, as an aspirational goal, it's good. Um, as a practical goal, I'm a little bit less sure that it's actually uh, achievable. And so I've actually, with my co-author Wendell Wallach, we, we put together something where we suggested that, that there ought to be a ban on combining uh, any more than two out of three elements of these systems. So the three elements are self-autonomous movement, autonomous targeting, and autonomous firing. So we thought that if you had any two of those, so it could move on its own, a target on its own, but couldn't fire on its own, it would require a human to push that button, or it could, you know, uh, move and fire on its own, but it couldn't target on its own. You'd need a human to do that part. So if you, you know, put a human on any three of those, then you would sort of avoid the worst case sorts of scenarios. The danger there is that. Of course, if those all three elements exist, they just haven't been deployed in a single package, then it's a very quick jump to deploy them as such. But the realistic part of me says, well, the military 
are going to keep pursuing this anyway. So they are developing those 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 components uh, continuously. So why not say, you know, we're not going to stop the development of any of those. We're just going to say, don't put them together. Hmm. Interesting. Well, getting back to the enterprise world, in enterprise and industry and public sector, these technologies are going to be having more of an impact moving forward. If you were speaking to a CEO, how would would you have any advice for just kind of guiding your organization through these transitions? As we said, those cultural changes are going to be are going to loom as as large as as the technology transitions. Well, I think that the advice is first don't build it and then assume you'll figure out how to <laughs> uh, accommodate to it afterwards. Let's go into this with full prior as best we can uh, figure out you know what the actual consequences will be of whatever it is that we're rolling out and i think that that's a slightly different attitude than some of the people in the tech industry have where they just they they pride themselves on disruption and they don't really know what they mean by the outcome of that disruption right they just think it's going to be disruption is good in some way Mm. Um, i would rather see more uh, considered disruption, as it were, having thought through those consequences. And then I would say that thinking through process is extremely important to get as diverse a set of uh, people in to help think through those processes. So this is, you know, if I were going to put in a plug for philosophers, put philosophers in there, But, but, but put other people who might not share the kind of overall enthusiasm for technology that people in the industry often do to give their their perspectives a chance to make people realize, oh, wait a second, that I hadn't thought about that consequence, so maybe we should think about that consequence. So again, that comes back into doing it before you actually roll things out. Consequences being, for example, the impact on jobs and, and, and how it's going to change people's work lives, possibly eliminate jobs. But also I think about how it impacts our our living spaces. So, for instance, take the self-driving cars. If it turns out that the cars will stop for pedestrians that are in the road, regardless of whether they're in the crosswalk, what's to stop people gaming the system by just stepping out in front of self-driving cars? How do we prevent that? Well, we could build higher fences so that people can only cross the roads at designated spots, right? Or we could make the cars have some probability of running over the pedestrians. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like with a real car, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the point is that, that if we decide that we're not going to um, uh, have the cars really behave like humans here and actually run over a few pedestrians who step out inadvertently because the car could do a better job at stop, right? So safety is priority. How are we going to have to change the environment that humans live in in order to stop people then from gaming the system? And how would that play out in an enterprise, for example? Oh, yeah, that's a good question, right? So I guess I think that in any enterprise where you're doing something, you're, you're particularly if you're thinking of what you're doing is disruptive, then you are looking at replacing something that already exists with something something that is objectively better, hopefully, in many regards, right? 
But the, and this again, I'm just talking very abstractly, which is probably better to be concrete here. But if we're gonna put, you know, I, I remember Sebastian through behind the Google Cars project saying, you know, it was a moral imperative to build these things because people die in automobile accidents. And so wouldn't it be better if fewer people die? In some sense, that's correct. It would be better if fewer people die. But I don't think at that point there was much discussion about what are the larger implications of shifting from a, an environment in which most of the vehicles have a human being behind the wheel, all of them have a human being behind the wheel, to one in which most of them do not. And we're sort of, we're, we're, we're inching towards that in a way that I think um, is problem driven. So you see it with the, it's reactive, right? Something goes wrong, California threatens to withdraw the permits for anybody to drive autonomous vehicles on the roads. But shouldn't we be actually having some kind of discussion about that before those cars were even put on the street? Yeah, I mean, that's a theme that comes up in, in technology disruption a, a lot, just really not thinking through what you're going to do with it. Even like in an, like I said, in an, in an enterprise context, a lot of times we see this syndrome, we, we call it technology for technology's sake, where people adopt new technologies and they haven't really thought out not just the, the implications for the workforce, or the customers, but they haven't really thought out the business outcomes that they're trying to drive with that technology. Mm-hmm. I would think with AI, you'd really have to very have a clear idea ahead of time. Maybe it's not so much an ethical issue, but just a practical issue. Although I'm sure there's ethics, there's an ethical dimension to it as well. But just knowing exactly why you're adopting this technology, what it's going to do better, and what it's going to transform. Right. So that's the kind of question I think would, should be raised during the development, not after it's developed and people are itching to get it out in the world, so to speak. It's even right at the very beginning. And I don't know, part of the problem here is why should somebody in enterprise go and seek that kind of uh, input right at the very beginning because the incentives are a little bit different. Uh, I mean, if, if people had said to Uber, you know, your app is going to disrupt the taxi drivers, maybe you should think about whether this is a good thing, they would have said, so what, I think. And now it's going on to some more and more AI involved in these kinds of products. What, you know, why, why should they listen? I think that's the, the biggest challenge. How do we go from something where, where collectively we're just reactive to the kinds of technological changes that are always coming? So one that's more predictive reactive in a sense, right? So we anticipate those changes and then we know we can be ready for them. Well, AI and predictive analytics could perhaps prepare us for the impact of AI and predictive analytics in the future. Yeah, so I think what people also need to understand too, this this is kind of interesting, this is a general science education thing. So, you know, if I say that you know, doctors have a certain diagnosis error rate on x-rays of whatever 2% and the machines 1%, those 3% of errors need to be overlapping, right? So they could be like, what the machine gets wrong is completely different from what the human gets wrong, vice versa. And so if you put them together, you've now got a perfect system, unlikely, but that's, you know, mm-hmm. we, we really need to also understand how much overlap there is between the errors that are made by both, because that 
that then helps you understand when somebody comes in and says, well, the machine detected this, and, and, but the radiologist thinks it's that, how do you weigh that information? Hmm. That's sort of, I think, understanding what the limits of these systems are is almost as important as understanding their capabilities. And that's a good point, because again, given the sensational headlines, you have to sort of remind yourself that this is going to be like a lot of technology transitions. It's not going to be overnight where we have these things running everything, but it is going to be a gradual shift, maybe faster than would make a lot of people comfortable, but, but gradual nevertheless, right? That's right. Right. We're sort of like the, you know, the apocryphal frog in the boiling, the water that's being slowly raised to boiling. It never goes to the temperature, so it doesn't get out, right? Um, so yeah, these things are coming. They definitely are more present than they ever were. And we keep making small adjustments in our behavior to deal with that. But at what, you know, by the time we're, we're several steps down the road here, are we looking back saying, I wish I'd known where we, where we are now and I wouldn't have taken those first steps to try to go in a different direction. Hmm. So basically, don't bolt on the uh, the ethics and the thinking of future implications at the end. Build it right into the process from the beginning. I think that's right, yeah. Interesting. Well, we've covered some great ground here. Are there any um, additional thoughts that you, you'd like to share that we haven't covered? Let me just give you one more anecdote that I think is illustrative of the limitations of the system. So I just upgraded my iPhone, and so I'm once... I'm not a big Siri user because typically Siri gets my dictation wrong, you know, gets the words wrong even. But I thought I'd try it. The feeling a little bit cheeky, I said, where can I find an expert in animal cognition, which is an area I happen to work in. Hmm. And, and the, the transcription was perfect. Where can I find an expert in animal cognition? What came back was a bunch of advice for expert tire and auto repair and expert painting you know, 1.3 miles, 1.6 miles. And I, I started thinking there were two things wrong with this. One, expert wasn't really being used as a modifier, but as part of a name, right? Yeah. Um, and secondly, a modifier, depending on what it is that you're looking for an expert in, your range is going to change. So, yeah, if I'm looking for a, an expert auto mechanic, I don't want to go very far for that. If I'm looking for an expert oncologist, I might be willing to go quite a long way for that. Hmm. And so the context sensitivity of the language that we use here, I think, is still something that's very much missing from any of the AI that we, we see. So we've got systems that are quite good at very simple factual sorts of questions. You know, how many miles is it to the moon? Siri can answer that, right? Mm -hmm. But stuff that actually requires a model of the questioner and what the questioner might be asking in the given context, I don't think we've got that at all. Humans are going to be around for a while. The singularity yeah. isn't coming right around the corner. I should still bother to pay my mortgage because um, Skynet isn't going to wipe us out anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. But we do have some big changes coming, just the same. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. And they're going to creep up on us. And the question is, are, are we going to be aware of them creeping up on us or are they going to blindside us? Hmm. So it's a pretty good time now start thinking about these changes whether you're in a government yeah. whether you're, you're you're leading an organization and another anecdote just to sort of point this out in a completely different context was a few years ago i was at a conference on technology ethics and 
people were sitting around before the conference just chatting, and there were a bunch of people who had worked on human bioethics stuff. And it was just fairly shortly after that whole Octomom incident. Remember the woman who had eight of her own eggs implanted sure. to have eight babies? And somebody there said, you know, that technology has been around for 25, 30 years. None of us saw that coming. Meanwhile, we've been sitting around talking about human cloning, which still hasn't happened and doesn't seem to be anywhere close, right? We were all focused on this sort of really fancy sci-fi scenario of human cloning. We didn't even notice that this actually would could happen tomorrow uh, or yesterday, as it turned out there. And I think that's a, that's a really good lesson, right? We need to not be sort of focused on the Skynet, Terminator, kinds of scenarios, singularity kinds of scenarios. But we need to look at the kind of the, the pieces that are lying around right now and how they might interact with each other in a way to produce the result that we hadn't anticipated. And that's technology and humans, te- technology and culture. Exactly. The intersection. Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been great. I, again, I really appreciate you taking the time. Happy holidays. Likewise. For more insights, analysis, and the voice of thought leaders, go to the Connected Futures online magazine at connectedfuturesmag.com.